Welcome to Fintrepreneur, where myself, Dave, and Eli cover all things fintech and entrepreneurship. Uh, excited today to have Michael Shum on the show. Thanks a lot for joining us, bud. Nice to meet you as well. A lot of the folks on the show are folks I've known a long time. This is a different situation here uh, in that it's actually our first time meeting. So I'm really excited to get to know you and your business here today. You know, today we're talking about private debt markets, democratizing private debt markets. And, you know, private markets, by definition, tend to be a lot more opaque, but that's changing uh, now in a lot of ways. And there's new standards being applied and, and fintechs coming up to basically make those markets more accessible. Historically, they're really only accessible to institutions and ultra high net worths. And it's a market where you're getting more broad participation and also, I'm sure, doing a lot of streamlining even for those bigger investors. So I look forward to understanding how you approach this and how your business does this. But you know, before we dive deep into your business, Cascade Debt, tell us just a bit about yourself. I'd love to hear your story and understand like how you came to, to found this business, and then we can get into the business itself. Perfect. No, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Um, great to meet you guys. So my background's on the finance side. Uh, I started off my career as a derivatives trader. Um, did that for about 10 years. Worked at JP on the credit hybrids desk, HSBC running their currency derivatives. And after a while on that space, you know, wanted to do something that had a bit more of an impact on the world. And so moved to the fintech side. Joined my friend and current co-founder at a fintech that was doing alternative credit scoring in emerging and frontier markets. So this problem, how do we close the gap, the funding gap for entrepreneurs in Africa, in Latin America, where there's no credit bureaus, not much data, and yet such a strong need for capital. Um, from there, we spun out into a private debt fund. Because prior to that, you know, at the fintech, a big goal was how do we close the credit gap? And we did that by, you know, working with banks and lenders to lend to more people. But with our own fund, we figured, hey, we could attack this problem more directly. And so I was chief investment officer of that fund, did that for about five years, and just saw firsthand how difficult it was to get these deals done in the private credit space, especially in the asset-backed lending space that we focused on. I mean, deals take anywhere between 12 to 18 months, right? Like You contrast that with even the private equity space, which is like three to six months. And so just taking forever. And then a lot of my time was being spent just working with these companies and explaining why they should raise um, debt and how to structure and all that is just very, very complex. And so, you know, after five years of running fund, the fund is still around, um, but we decided to start Cascade to serve the broader ecosystem. Tell me more about your fund, if you don't mind, just because that's quite interesting to, to us. We have a private credit fund that invests in small business consumer loans. What kind of investments did your private debt fund make? You gave us a bit of a flavor, but maybe dive into that a little bit deeper and, and curious to understand um, you know, what your investor base looked like and, and just more broadly understand your fund. Sure. Um, so we, we were starting this back in 2017, 2018. So back then, I'd say we were one of the first institutional debt funds really working with early stage companies, especially fintechs. And similar to you guys, we were looking to fund loans, loan portfolios um, at fintechs or financing companies in emerging markets, actually. So we were active in Latin America, Southeast Asia. We looked at Africa a few times as well. And so back then, in the early days, we started off doing direct loan buying, you know, trying to find like the best receivables at, you know, kind of like the the lending clubs of Latin America or like Southeast Asia, right? 
because we'd come again from that credit scoring company, we thought we had some bit of an edge in being able to underwrite these loans. But what happened was back in around 2019, we discovered that, hey, actually we can, you know, instead of these doing these on balance sheet loans or direct loan buying, we could instead use these asset-backed lending structures to off-balance sheet senior secured debt facilities. And so now, not only could we buy whole pools of loans, we could also get first loss and just the whole risk return was so much better. And I think, and so we ended up doing some of the first asset-backed lending deals in Latin America and in Southeast Asia. And what's really exciting to me these days is just how much this segment of the market has grown over the past three, four years. Wow. And, and you mentioned institutional. So were all your LPs institutions? Yeah. And then we were impact focused as well. So towards the end, we were even getting money from guys like the DFC um, and some other impact funds as well. So it was all institution, not much retail, except for you know ourselves putting in some money into some of those earlier funds to prove out the concept. But yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And, and how did you find these originators in these countries when you not, don't necessarily have a network there? Yeah. And so like we did have some network just from the fintech before we were active in these markets. And we were kind of in like that first wave of fintech lenders in a lot of these countries where, I mean, I remember like some of these companies now are some of the biggest lenders in the space in their countries. Like one of our first deals was a deal in Indonesia where I remember distinctly, you know, the first year we worked with them, they were doing, you know, like $10,000 of loans a month. The following year, they were doing 100000 the following year after that, they were doing millions. They're growing like 10x every year. And we were, you know, along for the ride. I think our first investment in them was like 100K, right? And then we followed that up like two, three years later after we had done some fundraising with, you know, a $10 million deal and then a $50 million deal. And so it was partly just being in the market. So I used to be based in Hong Kong and I would travel probably a week out of every month. So I went to, Indonesia, probably every quarter, Mexico, every quarter, just being on the ground, meeting folks. And frankly, you know, it's still true today. There's just much more demand for capital than there is supply, especially when working with earlier stage companies in the space. So, you know, you work with one, you can find many others. And this whole fintech segment, like globally, was booming at the time, too. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. Like, like our fund, Merchant Opportunities Fund, you know, does all those things that you just mentioned, right? Senior secured. Um, we do forward flow as well. You know, variety of structures depending on what the originator needs, um, and and variety of different loan types. But we've we've done it all only in in North America. So I think it's quite interesting how you've you've gone very global with it. Yeah, I mean, even globally, we were you know trying to follow the blueprint of deals done in New York, for example, right? And so we would do deals in Mexico, but with New York law and a lot of things. But of course, like with local flavoring. And so I remember doing the first deals in like Indonesia or Vietnam. And, you know, you're trying to figure out, okay, like what's the equivalent of a trust or what's the equivalent of an SPV? And like, how do you get these things structured properly so that your money can both get in and get out, right? And so, you know, I think like both the beauty and downfall of the private credit space is you can customize everything to make it work. So no, it was it was definitely a great learning experience. I think we went into it back in the day, like not knowing these things even existed, right? Going from there yeah, to having some of it. You created a lot of new credit in, in markets, uh, you know, for business owners, consumers, and I'm sure very, you know, what are otherwise pretty credit-starved environments. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it, it's still, you know, there's still a lot of demand for this type of capital. I mean, 
given the tremendous opportunities in North America, right? Like it, it is hard for a lot of investors to, you know, even look south to Mexico, but we're seeing that change. And like, especially for the guys today who are active in Africa, like it's just wide open. You can probably, you know, have your pick of deals there. So Mike, this is really interesting because I, you know, a lot of people we talk to are often doing business in Canada and Canada, the US, you know, financing companies doing business internationally is, is not as much, not as many actually go, you know, across all borders sort of thing. So, you know, I come from the export financing world uh, in my, in my past life. So it's really interesting to hear about this international type of lending, but also learn a little bit more about what are the benefits and what were the challenges that you faced. Obviously, one of the benefits I can think of top of mind is expanding your addressable market <laughs> to the entire world, right? Uh, but what were some of the challenges you faced? Yeah, no, I think like it wasn't a conscious decision um, to get into this space. Like obviously, there was a big gap in the emerging markets, um, and I a lot of my career was in emerging markets. I mean, today most of our business is in the U.S. Don't get me wrong, but I think mm-hmm. like this market is inherently global. Right. We have investors based in the US or Europe doing deals abroad while also doing deals like a lot of these guys increasingly have some sort of EM carve out, for example. Right. And so it just naturally led to us, you know, catering to this very niche asset class for now, but like globally. Mm -hmm. And some of the challenges are, you know, every market's going to have its own nuance. Right. And you're going to have to deal with issues you probably don't have to do. Like, you know, for example, rule of law is not as strong in emerging markets, right? So on the investor side, you know, in the US where it's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure my loan docs are pretty, you know, rock solid. In emerging markets, sometimes, you know, you have to take it a step beyond, right? Like your docs are good, but they're a starting point, right? Like no one's ever going to, you don't want to drag anyone into like a Mexican court for eight years, right? Like it's just detrimental for everyone involved. And so you have to do other things to stay on top of the risk, build relationships and like kind of get the real story before you do these deals sometimes. But I think the interesting thing is despite all that, the same rules and qualities that you look for a deal apply globally as well, right? And a lot of the risk mitigation techniques you can put in also apply globally. So I think increasingly, you know, and that's part of our goal is to keep standardizing, commoditizing this market even more so that you know, our dream is like, hey, you know, this a young startup in Southeast Asia can raise just as easily as, you know, a, like high profile VC backed San Francisco fintech startup. Right. And to just make sure there's enough liquidity across the market for everyone involved. So let's talk about that. Then let's bring it to your business today. Give us, you know, just a, some examples and, and as to who do you work with? What are you facilitating and so on? Yeah. And so we've built an end to end platform to make doing these deals and managing them much, much easier. And so on the company side, you know, raising debt is a very time consuming process, right? And the worst part is unlike equity, once you close the deal, there's still a lot of work after you close the debt deal. Now you have to build, there's like a huge operational burden, a lot of overhead to do reporting, do monitoring. Now you have covenants to track. Now you have um, reporting to do. Now you have to like redo all of your data. And so it's a big lift for companies who, you know, probably have a lot of things on to prioritize on the engineering side. Meanwhile, on the mm-hmm. investor side, and, you know, you guys are in this space as well. So let me know if this resonates, you know, doing these deals takes too long, right? Like getting things in the structuring process takes a while, even chasing people for data, right? It could be months sometimes to get the right data, to be able to analyze a deal, 
Um, each deal, each data tape you get is going to be very different. So you're going to spend time manually building charts, analyzing it. And of course, once you've done the deal, like now you've got to get these reporting packages. And I mean, the standard in our industry is to get what, like a monthly report, a quarterly report that's self-attested from the borrower. And so, you know, we experienced this ourselves, like when COVID hit, and this was back when we were still on the investor, like, you don't want to have to wait till the end of the month or the end of the quarter just to see like, hey, how's the portfolio doing, right? Like, right. How, what am I going to do if I'm in a workout situation? And so our platform now gives almost real-time views to all of these things. We do direct data integrations to just remove a lot of the burden of taking data, transforming it, translating it so that you know everyone can be on the same page. We do that on behalf of the companies and the investors. And we automate a lot of the reporting. You know, you're talking about weeks of work to come up with these very complex reports can now be done in a few clicks in our system, right? And on the investor side, it's also just like greater transparency into the deals. At any point, everything's in the same place. They can review all these deals. It's basically everything we wish we had when we were on the investor side um, and, you know, done with modern technology so that no one needs to chase anyone for spreadsheets anymore. And so you're, you're focused on the upfront due diligence as well as the post close monitoring, et cetera. You know, how much of the product that you built today, like is it 50, 50 between those two buckets or. Yeah. And so I look at a deal process as being, there's being three main stages, right? There's going to be the due diligence stage, the structuring stage, and then finally post deal monitoring. Um, we have things built out for all three from the beginning. We've looked at building, I mean, the rippling guy calls it like a compound startup, right? Rather than tackling just one niche part of this process, we saw very quickly that the biggest value could happen if we could solve, you know, kind of end to end, right? This 18 month process, if you just solve one thing, you know, that's probably not enough. But fortunately, the same data powers all three stages, right? The same raw ingredients. And so once we get those data creations in, you know, on the due diligence side, we have dashboards to very quickly you know, pull up vintage analysis, delinquency rates, volumes, all of that stuff, you know, so that you can get your teaser or your investment memos done faster. On the structuring side, we have a full contract library, right? Now we have a number of covenants and contract language already built out that you can copy and paste in the contracts or even as you're structuring these deals, you can back test all your covenants, create shadow boring bases, you're setting the right eligibility, you know, I, we were talking to a lawyer the other month and he's like, okay, so basically you're going to replace that like first year law associate, right? Or that first year, even like doing all this scenario analysis, like we can do it on our platform now automatically. And then finally on the post-deal monitoring side, it's automated reporting, generating waterfalls, compliance certificate, all of that stuff, which is busy work probably for the yeah. most part and requires like pulling data from multiple systems and getting it right. Like we can do it automatically now. So Mike, the added value is really to automate the analysis part and make it much easier for both sides to interact. Yeah, but, but there's page. Exactly. And so like on the company side, I mean, I was speaking to the CEO of a financing company just a few weeks ago. And he's, by the end of it, he's like, oh, okay, I get it. You're going to save me like 300K in payroll by the end of this, right? Between right. all the ops and finance people and like some of the lawyer fees that they have to pay. And then on the investor side, I think, What's changed over the past four or five years is especially when working with fintechs is the underlying risk is getting more complex, right? It used right. to be when you were doing deals in this space, maybe you'd loan portfolios with like hundreds of loans, maybe thousands. Now in the mm -hmm. fintech space, you're dealing with guys who are generating hundreds of thousands of loans a month, 
right? I mean, the right. other day we got a loan tape to ingest that was 85 gigabytes, right? Like you wow. literally, you just can't open this in Excel anymore, right? And so like, just forget even about being an analyzing, like there's no way you're going to be able to monitor this perfect, like at like a loan level basis. But our system has been built natively to support all that stuff. So that, you know, you like the investors have the peace of mind that things are running properly. And if they need, they can dive a bit deeper into the data. So a lot of the people that are listeners to the podcast are either people that are early stage in the fintech journey, people that are looking for ways to get into the fintech space. I'd be really interested in just hearing, you know, going from someone that was focused on the finance side on, uh, and, you know, you've been in that role for a long time to now building essentially a tech company, right? And building that out, just walk us through a little bit of that process and how that went, went for you. Yeah, no, it was a big change. I think, look, it's still finance, right? Even though it's a bit yeah. more fintech focused now, but it was a big jump. But I think partly it was a personal interest to me, right? I did a master's in data science, for example, comp sci courses. And so was always interested on the technology side. Um, but I think the biggest thing is just being able to make an impact, right? Like if you work at a bank or a large corporation, you know, like it's a good life, right? But I just felt like I wasn't making as big of an impact on the world potentially. Whereas when you're a business owner, right, you're creating something from scratch, um, you're going to be challenged, you're going to have a tangible impact on whatever you build. And so um, I think that's what really appealed to me to start these. And like Cascade is my third company, right? I mean, counting the fund we did before, but I also, you know, I started a recycling company when I was in Hong Kong. If you, you were in Hong Kong, so you remember, there's no recycling there at all. And so yeah. that was kind of like a side gig, sold it to like a social VC fund. It's still ongoing. I get a dividend check every every year. Um, and it's really oh, yeah. cool what they've been able to do. Um, That's cool. Yeah. And I've always kind of had that itch to build things. So, yeah. So talk about your entrepreneurial journey a little bit more. Like, did you, uh, who was part of the founding team? Did you raise capital? Are you still raising capital? You're about two years into this now. Where are you on your path and how do you see that path evolving? Yeah. And so we just started last year and my co-founder, Kyle, he, we met in undergrad back in the day. So both of us went to York. Um, this was 15, almost 20 years ago now. We're kind of old. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we met actually when we went on exchange in China. Now, we didn't work together after college, but, you know, we came back to work at the fintech together, spun out the fund together. He was COO of that fund. And now he's CEO of the current company. And so we've been working together for a while now. And yeah, I think that's been a big part of where we are today. We started last year. We raised the initial seed round last year, including from um, Impression Ventures. They're based out of Toronto. Um, they co-letter around in Newstack Ventures out of Chicago. So we've been doing this for about a year um, and things are going well. We've grown, you know, we're like a SaaS company, right, for now. We've grown 30% every month since launch, basically. And we're, we've got over 60 companies on the platform. We're working with a number of investors directly now um, and just continuing the scale. So how, long, how long were you pre-revenue? Um, so we raised in June. We launched end of September. Um, and we pretty much had, we had like a few investors, a uh, few customers when we launched. But I mean, we, we were like very much still in the beta phase up until beginning of this year. But I mean, this year, how, like, how big is your development team? How the heck did you build such a complex product in just a few months? A big part of it is we knew what we needed to build, having been in this space before, right? Like we had been at the fund for five years. We had started building some internal dashboards there, right? To 
But like with Cascade, we already kind of knew like, okay, this is the roadmap. This is what we need to kind of, again, scratch our own backs here, right? Like we went through the pain of, man, these deals are so hard to do. These are so hard to monitor. What could we do to make this better? But not only just for the investors, but for the companies too, right? And so we had a very clear vision for what we needed to build from day one. And so that helped us avoid some potential pitfalls probably. Um, And we've just got a really great team. We're not a big team. We have about 13, 14 people today. To be fair, most of them are developers or data people, but you know, we're a startup. Sometimes it feels like we're we're building this airplane as we fly it, and there's a lot more to come. But you know, we've been really I've been really proud of our team for what they've built so far. Yeah, congrats on the progress, man. That's uh, that's exciting. You know, we're we're you know, merchant growth's been around for a long time, but Tabit and building out this technology is you know still relatively young and you know, going through that, you know how difficult it is to deliver on things like this. So kudos to you and the team for uh, delivering so quickly and moving forward on things like this. But I wanted to, if we can sidetrack a little bit, one thing that you mentioned is that you did an exchange and one in your founder today is an exchange. Uh, someone you met on that exchange. I obviously did an exchange in, in Hong Kong as well. I'm always such a big promoter of that, right? Because you, you go somewhere uh, at a stage in your life where, you know, you're focused on school and it's like, there's not a million other things going on. And then you meet all these interesting people from all around, right? Like yours, you know, ended up being, I believe, from Toronto, right? So back home, but just a network you build. And I don't know if that has that had any impact on you when you were doing these emerging market loans and stuff like that. But, you know, is that something you you highly recommend for people as well and, and doing that at that stage of life? No, I'm glad you brought it up because I completely agree. I went on two exchanges when I was in undergrad and they were the best times of my whole school career. Um, yeah. I highly, highly recommend anyone who has the opportunity to go on exchange. So I went to China the first time, and then I went to Singapore the second time. And you're right, like it just opens up your horizons. I think before I'd gone on exchange, I mean, like my co-founder, it was literally his first time on a plane going to China. Um, wow. For me, it was my first time really living by myself because both of us went to, I mean, I went to York and I was in Toronto anyway. And yeah. so it does open up your eyes. And like from there, you know, I kind of got the bug and like I did some internships in China and Hong Kong and decided to move there after school. And then my co-founder, Kyle, I mean, he's got an even more circuitous journey, but he was like, he lived in Africa for a while. Um, and, you know, now he's back in North America, but still it's just kind of those experiences working abroad really opens up what can be done. Cause I think, you know, Canada is as great a country as it is. It's also like kind of its own bubble, right? Until you get out there Mm -hmm. and kind of see what the rest of the world is like. And especially if you go to a place like Hong Kong, you really see like, man, things can move really fast. um, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I was born and raised in Ottawa. So the one, the first thing that actually shocked me when I got to Hong Kong was how clean the cars were, right? And I realized because they don't go through a winter the way that, you know, (laughs) the salt and all that kind of stuff. But But yeah, just in general, how the fast pace of of a city like that was was really exciting at a, at a young age, and the network that you build through that, and people that are still good friends today, you know. And so, anyway, bit of a sidetrack, but for anybody that's considering doing it, I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, for sure. So to, to bring it sort of back a little bit, talk to us about the landscape of the space that you're in, right? I, you know, yeah. you talked talk to us about what you guys do, but what are some of other companies in your industry doing, and how do you guys differentiate from them? Yeah, no, like, why don't I talk a bit about the market first? I mean, I know I'm talking to kind of like believers here because you're in the space, but I think one of the most exciting things in like capital markets in general has just been like the rise of private debt, private credit over the past four or five years, right? And we're seeing this now with 
you know, I was at a few conferences, like I was at a specialty finance conference last month, for example, in its second year, right? I mean, the year before it was like 100 people, this year it's like 500 people. I went to ABS East in Miami like a couple of weeks ago. And for the first time in its 15 years, they had a private credit summit, right? And you can kind of see the fundraising or Aries just raised 6.6 billion for their Pathfinder 2 fund. And this is in an age where like, you know, the equity guys are really struggling to raise in a lot of cases, right? And so this whole asset class, you know, is exploding. And even within this asset class, I think the asset backed deals, asset backed financing, asset backed lending is where. Private debt progress has traditionally been driven by direct lending, right? You're just funding these private equity deals. But more and more, it's becoming more focused on the asset-backed side, right? Doing these asset-backed lending deals. And then I think especially for startups, um, it's exciting because, you know, predominantly, like before, if you wanted to raise capital as a startup, you could raise equity. But like venture debt is pretty hard to come by for most folks, right? Um, and But what we've seen over the past three, four years is like, hey, actually, instead of just getting corporate debt or venture debt, you have this whole asset-backed lending side that can really open up like how much a company can grow. And so that has been really interesting to see just over the past four or five years. And, you know, why we started our company today, the focus on this side, because I liken it to, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, like the private equity and VC market was about the same size as where, you know, the private debt market is today in this space. And that's also when you started to seeing like companies start to build infrastructure for this market, right? Like the Cardas, the Angelists of the world all started coming around, I think, 2012, 2013, right? And I think mm-hmm. we're at the same inflection point in the private credit debt and, you know, asset-backed lending space. And so it's still early days, right? There's obviously a few mm-hmm. other players, I think um, we mentioned like percent early on before this and they're more focused on the fundraising side. But in terms of building infrastructure for this market, I think it's still wide open, right? For a market that, you know, if you look at just private debt, it's like $2 trillion. If you look at asset-backed finance, it's like a $5.5 trillion market, right? I used to always compare it to the crypto market back when it was a bit more popular. You know, the crypto yeah. market is like a trillion-dollar market. And you think you're like, how yeah. many companies are building infrastructure to serve the crypto market? Probably in the hundreds, yeah. if not thousands. In our space, yep. the market size is multiples of that. And yet you can probably count the number of companies in the space on like, you know, two hands, basically. Those early days, the market's big. I would say, you know, how we position against some of our competitors is like, look, we focused on kind of that end-to-end solution rather than just focusing on the due diligence side or just focusing on the post-deal monitoring side or just mm-hmm. the structuring. Because I think here, you know, the sum is greater than its parts, right? Because of just how the data needs to flow at each stage. And, you know, also our our global approach to this, right? We're natively built not only just for US or North American companies, but also for emerging markets. And like that comes down to even, you know, ingesting bank statements or getting fees, right? There's no plaid in most of these other countries we can rely on, right? So we've just been building a lot of rails basically to facilitate a global private debt market. Mike, since you've already got dozens of groups that you work with, anything interesting you're seeing in terms of trends in the market? Are you seeing more forward flow instead of senior secured? Are you seeing, uh, you know, obviously with interest rates rising and equity valuations 
changing too? You know, are, are originators opting for different structures? Like, what are, what are you seeing trend-wise? Yeah, what are some interesting trends? I mean, I'd say, like, and I would bifurcate it between, say, like, the U.S. North American market and, say, the emerging market. I think one of the biggest changes in the emerging market was, oddly enough, the market standard before was that all of these deals were fixed rate, right? Whereas in the U.S. and North America, it was all floating. And these days, of course, with rising interest rate, floating is now the standard everywhere. I've also seen kind of like just you're seeing for the first time in a long, long time, some countries kind of emerge as potential deal sources, right? It used to be, you know, free interest rate increases. There are certain countries like Brazil, Chile, where there was so much domestic money from local sources that they had no demand for capital outside of their countries. But because of where interest rates are today and everything, you're starting to see more deal flow in those markets for the first time. I think if you look at just the US market, for example, I think the biggest trend today is that actually, you know, I think historically the playbook has been, okay, you know, we're going to start with on balance sheet stuff, then we'll graduate to a warehouse line. And eventually we want to be able to do forward flow or securitizations and stuff like that. Right. And we just keep graduating up. What I've seen over the past year is companies are starting to recognize the value of diversifying the types, right? Maybe we don't just want to do forward flow or securitization just because if it gets shut off, like, you know, it could potentially in times like this, we're screwed, right? And so to have diversify that, and I've seen that actually like EM is leading the way in terms of diversifying investor set just because there isn't as much capital in that space, right? It's rare for one guy to be able to come in and do even like a hundred million dollars, right? And so you got to cobble together a couple fifties or a couple like three or four 25s from four different guys. Whereas in the US, it's always been like, okay, yeah, you know, I can do a hundred with an accordion up to 200, 300, right? Um, But what we're starting to see now is just like a bit more cautiousness where it's like, okay, maybe I don't want, like, especially post SVB, right? Like maybe I don't want all of my debt capital to come from one provider, right? You want to diversify across. Now in terms of like, Deal structures, I mean, I think, look, you know, in terms of what you can put in these types of deals is getting more interesting, right? It used to be it was just always loans, right? For the most part, leases, very old school type stuff. Um, these days, we're seeing a lot more revenue-based financing, for example, right? And so you're turning something that has historically been more corporate debt-driven, like, hey, you're just buying inventory to actually, yeah, we have regular cash flows. It is variable. It is tied to revenues. But you know, we're seeing a lot more of those types of platforms. We're seeing even just more esoteric stuff, right? And, well, I mean, I got to be careful when I use that term, but it's just, you know, not even just like royalty financing or litigation stuff, but even like within the receivable space, you're starting to see more action in like insurance, for example, or subscriptions. Um, so you're basically applying a lot of the same things that you've seen in invoice financing for ages, but applying it to new products. So the market is definitely widening over time. Very cool. So just just to um, to be clear, Mike, then the companies you're looking to work with from an investor standpoint, it, sorry, it is for companies, you know, not for individual investors. And there are other we companies work, that are looking. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to clarify that we work with both. The way I look okay. at it is like, you know, Carta, for example, right? Does Carta serve just the companies or does it serve the investors? They kind of serve both, right? We see ourselves in the same space, but for the private debt, right? Like we serve the companies, we serve the investors, we serve both, right? We just want everyone to be on the same page, spend less time on the operational burden of operating and managing these debt facilities and getting them across the line and ensuring everyone's on the same page, like become that almost single source of truth for, you know, how these deals are going. 
So actually, I had a question for you guys, having the unique experience of being both on the company borrowing money um, and the investor giving money in the debt space. You know, what are the main challenges or pain points that you're facing today to, like, you know, preventing you from scaling more than you want? On the fund side, you know, currently our paradigm is that we have a few programs going where the books are growing at a really nice pace right now. And so we're not even really looking for new originators to add at this moment. Um, we're about a $100 million fund today. And really, I'm just fundraising as fast as I can. And unlike your fund where you had all the, you know, it's kind of institutional support, we're really a, a individual investors in the fund today. And then the problem I'm finding, and I'm curious to understand how you kind of got around it, maybe it's just, you know, different types of institutions, you also have that sort of impact approach to it too. Uh, but in, in our case, you know, when I go to the fund of funds, you know, the pensions would be like one level up from that. You know, everyone just says, look, really like your returns, really like your track record, but we're not in the business of being more than 10% of somebody's fund. And we're also not in the business of doing checks less than 20 million or 50 million, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, you know, call me back once you're 200 million. And so as a result, it feels to me like the next 100 million of, of fundraising is going to continue to be very, very much individual investors and, you know, taking up a fair bit of my time in terms of just telling the story over and over. And then it might actually get easier as we get bigger. Uh, yeah, it sounds like you were able to kind of leapfrog that somehow. And I'm curious to hear maybe a bit about that. So, that, but before we get into that, I'll answer the second part of your question. You know, on the merchant growth side, uh, you know, we basically, from the inception of merchant growth, we started this fund in order to, you know, be our own solution, right? Uh, that's why we created the fund in the first place. Now we invest in a variety of loan portfolios, but for six, seven years, all it had was these loans that we originated with our, you know, origination business. However, today we have a few co-investors and, uh, we're in the process of of landing a large forward flow too to give us more optionality because we see some you know unique growth opportunities for our portfolio in the short term. So we've had to go through a lot of the same thinking of what what structure, what type of group, and uh, we went and got you know term sheets from a whole host of different groups in, in this whole process. So it's been an interesting uh, you know refresh on where the market is today and what those structures look like, at least for you know an originator like us in North America, but. Uh, yeah, right now, you know, whether it's on the merchant growth side with with small business loan origination or whether it's, uh, you know, on the fund side, looking at other originators, there seems to be an incredible demand for specialty finance. So the credit demand out there is very high. I think that's probably because banks are shutting their taps off in this higher interest rate environment. And so really, it's a question of how fast can we run uh, in terms of capital sourcing to really capitalize in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. I think... I mean, to answer your first question on the fundraising side, I mean, look, there's going to be many different ways to raise it. I think, you know, what we've seen is a lot of the funds, especially in the early days, you need kind of that true believer family office or that one anchor investor to push you. You guys have the benefit of having a track record. So at least you're not just selling a PowerPoint slide at this point, but it's really just getting that anchor in. And then from there, I mean, you already have all this money. It's I mean, something that's overlooked in a lot of cases is just finding leverage, raising debt for your own debt facility, for your own debt fund. That is often much easier because often, like, you know, you're their senior, it's much safer risk return, and they can therefore do a much larger ticket. And there's a number of firms out there who will do that. And on the impact side, I mean, if you're funding like small business stuff, I mean, there's certainly a case to be made. 
And I'm happy to discuss kind of, you know, what are the trends I see in terms of how you frame yourself on the impact side, right? Generally, everything's going to be tied to the UN SDGs, right? And if you're doing small business loans, that's a very easy, you know, you're hitting one, five, eight, and 10 probably on the UN SDGs. Um, what is that acronym? I'm not familiar with it. Uh, so like in the impact space, most of the impact funds out there, and I will contrast this from ESG, which is also like the other big, you know, acronym being used in the space, but impact itself, I'd say most funds and institutions in the space are tying themselves to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, right? And so a while ago, they outlined all of these goals that they wanted to, it could be like income inequality, gender inequality, water, like there's like a, a number of them. And so basically the best way to institutionalize your impact reporting was to tie your impact to these UN SDGs. And the way you do that, at least in the financing space, it's quite easy is because, you know, a lot of what fintechs are doing today is basically what microfinance was doing 10, 15 years ago, right? And microfinance, you know, like with Eunice and all, like it's grown and it's still there, of course, but a lot of the fintech companies are serving very similar borrowers, right? You're helping unbanked, right? People who don't have access to capital. And so... Fortunately, because microfinance has been around long enough to also institutionalize their own things, you can use the biggest metric there is called Iris Plus. Um, that's where you're quantifying the impact you make. And those Iris Plus metrics can then be mapped back to the UN SDGs. And you can very quickly, like especially if you are doing small business loans, you can you are 100% like under like you can very easily map the the work you do to the impact side to appeal to that side as well. Now I will say, you know, financial inclusion is often the most saturated part of it because it's and so if you can, you know, do agriculture stuff or health stuff or green environmental stuff as well, like there's often different buckets of capital available for other strategies, but even within the financial inclusion space there's certainly room and whether you go for impact money or not, like, yeah, to go back to the original part, you can get leverage for your fund, do co-investment on an institutional level, right, um, where you can be leading deals, syndicating these deals out, and from there getting, you know, managed accounts and stuff like that. And just going from there until before you know it, you've got hundreds of millions more basically under your management and using that as justification to get those $20, $50 million checks from the other institutions. Yeah, Michael, I, that is uh, really good insight. And I've learned a lot today from that. You know, I think that what our fund does absolutely helps basically smaller businesses compete with larger businesses. Like it just makes it, you know, it's democratizing access to capital, right? And I, I really believe in that impact. If you read the reviews that our small business originator gets online, I mean, people really see the value in the funding they're able to get from us. And while, you know, we obviously still have to, or for-profit capitalistic construct where we have to deliver a certain net return to our uh, limited partners. The fact that we're able to make this credit available and, and use data science to accurately price risk so we can, mm -hmm. you know, basically, especially over time as the models get more and more accurate, drive the cost down for, you know, at least the borrowers that, that can demonstrate that they should have a lower cost. Like there's a cost to the money, but like that's just the nature of credit. But having credit available where, you know, in the past there was none available, extremely valuable to you know, society. To I think 
I mean, and you're preaching to the choir, right? That's why we set up our fund before, right? We wanted to, under that umbrella of financial inclusion, right? We think, you know, often debt might get, you know, have a bad reputation, but in a lot of places, you know, an entrepreneur who can get access to, you know, just $5,000 to fuel his business like that is, you know, life-changing, right? And done in a way where they can build up, you know, a new life for themselves, add to the economy. And I think, you know, impact often gets kind of a bad name as well, right? Especially in finance circles, it's almost like, oh, you guys are charity or something like that. But I think actually you can do both, right? I mean, with our previous fund, we were definitely commercially driven, but it meant also that, you know, we wouldn't be funding certain deals that weren't so helpful, right? Um, We're not doing like corporate loans or anything like that, right? And I think the space is increasingly, especially as you can quantify this impact, it gets less, you know, arbitrary, wishy-washy, right? And more like, hey, I'm quantifying, like, this is the number of businesses I've helped, right? These are the number of entrepreneurs I've helped. These are some of the metrics could be like, you know, you track job creation at the businesses that you've been financing, right? Year over year, right? And so these are really tangible metrics that are definitely making an impact on the entrepreneurs and the economy. Yeah, I, I think we could do a lot more around that. So you've, you've definitely motivated me to think about that more. You know, we're fortunate to have great leverage support. We have a, a, a bank facility with a big five Canadian bank mm-hmm. that's syndicated with another bank. We're adding more banks to that syndicate as well. We have a lot available under that, which is really good. So we can fund in particular, the small business loans originated by merchant growth that sit in the fund. So is there a borrowing base eligible and we can keep funding that under that facility? Uh, you know, as we bring new originators on into the fund, you know, those strategies don't get leverage out the gate. And, you know, I want to do more of those. And so, you know, it's really we're solving for the, the equity in the fund. Um, but, you know, I really haven't done, you know, much as, as far as speaking with the impact funding kind of side of the world. So, and, you know, obviously we both agree on the impact there. So something I should do. Thank you for that. So with that said, I think I'll pass it to Eli for our closing question. Uh, and it's it's fun to see how different guests on the show, you know, take this question. You can take it in a lot of different directions. Yeah, I got to do the fun stuff around here, Mike. So uh, <laughs> the question that we always ask, and, you know, we get a lot of really interesting answers, but I think for you in particular, based on where your space is and, you know, saying you're right, still at the infancy of it. You know, if you're looking out 10 years from now, what do you hope to look back on and say, hey, we've achieved this as an industry, we, we've moved towards this, you know, what do you, what do you hope happens? Yeah, no, I hope that this market becomes basically mainstream, the same way that we've seen, let's say, even the venture capital world, right, over the past 10 years have gone from fairly obscure, right, a few firms here and there, to now it's, you see, shows on HBO about, you know, Uber and like, you've got like the benchmark guys in there, right? It's just like, it's become almost like mainstream. Um, I think in our space, we've got a long way to go, but in 10 years, I hope that this asset class isn't so unknown. And I certainly imagine that this asset class will be on par with private equity VC and just as accessible, right? Our vision is in the future, you know, I'd want to be able to do one of these asset backed deals just as easily as it is to buy a bond, right? do like a syndication mm-hmm. at a bank, right? And there's no reason you can't, especially in the fixed income space, right? At the end of the day, it's less art and more science, right? Where are the yields? What's the overcollateralization, right? Where are the protections on it? Where am I in the stack? And so we're working on, you know, really standardizing, commoditizing, and just making this market as large and as liquid as possible 10 years from now. Great. I love that. Michael, it's been a pleasure. 
It's great getting to know you and I look forward to doing more of that. Yeah. Appreciate you taking the time today and uh, look forward to releasing this episode with you. Awesome. No, thanks for the time, guys. It's been great speaking with you guys as well. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, this was Venturepreneur.